From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The term hot spot fits the western slope awfully well right now with major wildfires burning, but the region is quite literally a climate change hot spot having warmed more than the areas surrounding it will explain. Then a first-time delegate to the Democratic National Convention. Improving life in Indian country is a big priority for Richard Henson of Denver. And later, the side effects of being an Olympian. So let's say that you make it to the Olympics. Some side effects may include an eating disorder, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, almost like a disconnect from the real world. That's from the new documentary, The Weight of Gold, about athletes' mental health. I'll speak with two Coloradans who appear in the film, Jeremy Bloom and Katie Ulander. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Unrelenting fire conditions mean Governor Polis has issued a 30-day statewide ban on open fires. Three of the four fires that are, we're currently fighting were likely caused by human activity. And the hot, dry weather is making fire behavior extreme. Rapid spread, already taxing our resources to fight fires, and uh, we need to do everything that we can to prevent new fires from starting in the first place. And since fires are often between counties and between jurisdictions, this will help reduce all of our risks. Now, two of the major fires he mentioned are burning on the western slope, and that is one of the largest areas in the United States to have warmed two degrees Celsius or more over the last 125 years, according to an analysis by the Washington Post. Reporter Juliette Alprin joins us. She won a Pulitzer Prize this year for her climate coverage, a series called Two Degrees Celsius Beyond the Limit. And Juliette, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. The Pine Gulch Fire, just north of Grand Junction, is smack in the middle of this area that you found has warmed even more than surrounding lands. Uh, So in the three degree Celsius range since 1895. And then the other fire, the Grizzly Creek Fire near Glenwood Springs, is on the edge of the two degrees Celsius zone. Of course, it has closed down I-70. What does the research you've done tell you about the conditions that feed wildfires? Well, the research makes it very clear that climate change, including specifically in Colorado and across the West, is intensifying these wildfires. And in fact, you know, some of the best research in the world is being done at places like University of Colorado, Colorado State University. And so, for example, um, human contribution to climate change has effectively made fuels 50 percent drier and doubled the amount of Western forests that have burned since 1984. And so as a result, what we're really seeing is that you're seeing, you know, more fires and more intense ones, particularly at this moment, you know, in a, in a, a place that's, that's in a 20-year drought. And so that's, that's really significant. And, you know, there, there is a clear connection there. Right. I mean, I can imagine longtime Westerners thinking, well, we've always had fires, Juliet. I mean, gosh, right. and, and we've had big fires and we've had catastrophic fires. What you're very clearly stating here is that we are seeing more of them and they are more intense because of human-caused climate change. Do I have that right? 
Right, and we've and also we've essentially doubled the length of the fire season, extending it by an additional 50 days. So exactly those conditions are persisting for longer, and that's part of why, for example, absolutely, fire is part of nature and part of the West, yeah. but it has more opportunities than it did before. Over a century, a rise of two degrees Celsius, by the way, that's about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That may not seem like a lot, but that is the threshold the Washington Post chose for its Pulitzer Prize winning coverage of climate change. Why should two degrees and in some spots more, as we've said, why should that set off alarm bells? The reason why something like two degrees which doesn't seem like a lot to your average person, matters, is because it does have a marked impact on people's lives. And so while you, on a given day you don't see how that makes a difference, yeah. it does affect people in very real ways, we, which we can talk about, including, of course, first and foremost, the Colorado River and water supply for 40 million Americans. Uh-huh. The, the other reason we chose that, that target is because since the early 90s, every year, the nations of the world, nearly 200 nations, have pledged that they want to keep the world from warming two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And they set that, scientists set that target decades ago because there's a broad understanding that if the world as a whole warmed that much, it would trigger really significant tipping points. We're talking about things that, again, we are already seeing the melting of ice sheets, the thawing of permafrost that's actually releasing more carbon into the air, things like what we're talking about, more intense drought, wildfires. And so we thought it was useful to say, this is what the world has pledged will not happen by the end of the century. We found all these spots around the world, 10% of the globe, that are already there. What does our future look like? These hot spots, and you identify a rather a significant one on the western slope of Colorado into eastern Utah. Uh, in fact, this is one of the largest areas in the lower 48 to experience a warming of 2 degrees Celsius or greater. And uh, we're talking about about like 30,000 square miles of this region between Colorado and Utah. But I also know that's not the only reason you wanted to focus on this region. Why, why else did it interest you? There were a couple of reasons. One is is that in, in our series, we had written about a lot of things, but we, we hadn't really written about water and water supply, which is such an important question. And so that was a really interesting way to look at it. But the other reason I was particularly drawn to looking at Grand Junction once I saw that, you know, Mesa County had warmed more than 2.3 degrees C since 1895 is because, of course, the oil and gas industry is so important there. And in fact, the Trump administration made the decision to move the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management, which oversees oil and gas drilling in the entire country, to this place. And so I thought, what better place to go to than uh, you know, kind of one of the hearts of America's oil and gas industry, and where where there's obviously this connection between extracting and burning fossil fuels and climate change, and look at what's happening there and how do people view that issue. And of course, the Colorado River, which you already mentioned, upon which millions of people rely, including many of us on the other side of the continental divide. What do we know is happening because of climate change to the Colorado River? 
What we know is that, again, over um, what we've seen is over the past century, its flow has has shrunk by uh, roughly 20 percent, and half of that is directly attributed to climate change. And so, and in fact, you know, it's it's always very important where you look at the baseline, like what you know, how do you, where where do you look at the historic average? But particularly if you look, if you you know, kind of look at what it was like, la, you know last century as opposed to the first 20 years of this century, it's a really significant change in its flow. And so uh, there's there's a a very clear connection there. And again, this is something that, as we're seeing, will only likely intensify in the years ahead. And that, you know, has ripple effects across the country. The city of Grand Junction assessed its water needs for the next half century and projections came up short by some 3,300 acre feet uh, the curious way we measure water, acre feet. Who are some of the people you met whose livelihoods are in jeopardy because of these trends? I spent a bunch of time with farmers and water managers when I was out on, on the Western Slope. And so these are the folks who really depend exactly for their day jobs, in addition to, say, the water coming out of the tap. And what I found is, again, across, uh, you know, across the slope, you had both farmers and the people who manage all these water supplies keenly aware of the fact that there was less water available at a time that there's, of course, growing demand for that very supply from, you know, all the people who move to Colorado and elsewhere because they think it's an incredible place to live. And as a result, they're very concerned about how to manage this confluence of events and how how can they deal with the fact that there's less of, frankly, what is the most important ingredient for how they raise the food that you and I eat on a regular basis. Yeah, it occurs to me that perhaps the panda bear of Colorado, the symbol of what is threatened by, you know, the the changes in our climate or the polar bear, perhaps, of Colorado might be the the Palisade peach. I mean, we're talking about the farmers who grow your peaches. uh, But and, and for them, this is not abstract. Climate change is not some distant thing. And so how did you find what is a more conservative region in Colorado? How did you find them reacting to the data that you dug up? So what I found is that really everyone I talk to, of course, is keenly aware of what's happened with the drought and and anyone with, with real perspective there uh, really accepted the fact that the climate has changed, that winters are milder, that there's less water. There was a pretty pragmatic approach to the idea that climate change is underway. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of a diversity in views of what's causing it. Certainly, everyone I, I talked to thought that humans played some role, but there was of course, a spectrum of, of, of where they landed on how much humans were driving the problem and where there certainly was a real schism was what to do about it, particularly when it came to, again, getting back to this question of oil and gas, whether it is appropriate to curtail our use of oil and gas in order to tackle climate change. So it's kind of everyone agrees there's a problem and is working on, on how to deal with it, but there was definitely division on, on what's the best solution, particularly if it meant taking on a huge economic 
driver in the region. No doubt, though, that the economy in and around Grand Junction is diversifying, and you're seeing a lot of industry move to that area related to tourism and the outdoors. So this is... This is not a brand new conversation for folks in that region by any means. Are, are there questions you still hope to answer about these kind of climate change hotspots, Juliet? Well, you know, it's, it's, it is a, a good point. I, I'm, I'm, our, our series, the story I wrote was the final one in, in this series. And so um, I, I think that we are, you know, acutely aware, however, that this story never ends. And as yeah. you said, what's so interesting is I'm going to be I'm working on a story right now sparked in fact you know by as i as i revisited what was happening in the region to this issue of wildfires and so we're we're working on something related to that because it clearly is related to this hot spot and so i think part of what we will continue to do looking going forward is looking at you know what are you know we've identified these places and we've looked at some of the impacts that are already happening now part of what we need to do is is see how is that playing out and again how are these folks coping what is the future of agriculture on the on the western slope my sense is this conversation is really just beginning and it'll be fascinating to see how that unfolds and i think we'll continue to be looking to you know again similar kinds of conversations in in these areas that that we've identified throughout the U.S. and overseas. I'm grateful that you shared your reporting with us. That's Juliet Alprin, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, The Washington Post. She has written about climate change specifically on Colorado's western slope. We'll be right back with what it means to be a delegate to a virtual political convention. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. In normal times, this is what a national political convention sounds like. But things are mighty different this year. Here's what it sounded like Tuesday when after the traditional roll call of states, Joe Biden officially became his party's nominee. The applause coming from a couple dozen people in their homes across the country, their faces smiling from computer screens linked on one giant remote chat that aired nationwide. In Denver, convention delegate Richard Henson watched the celebration. He's been zooming into Democratic committee meetings during the day, watching the big speeches at night from his home. And Richard, welcome to the program. Yeah, hello, um... My name is Richard Henson. I am an enrolled member of the Comanche Nation and the Winnebago Tribe. Um, and I was an elected delegate this year. Um, I want just, to say that your participation, in fact, in the Democrats' Native American caucus is uh, related to why you became a delegate. Will you tell us just a bit about that? Um, yeah, first I want to go back in some background um, with my grandfather, who was a co-founder in the National Democratic uh, 
National Committee Native American Caucus and the longest-serving DNC member that was Native American. He was an inspiration to you, I gather. Yeah, and he had passed last August suddenly after he had um, accomplished his second um, doctorate. Um, He passed a month later from cancer suddenly. I'm sorry that you lost him. Yeah, and, you know, that that was hard. Um, Is that the reason you decided to become a delegate? Did it feel in a way like a, a carrying on of his legacy. Um, yeah, and, and along with the delegate, I am actually the chair and founder of the Native American um, initiative of the Democratic Party in Colorado. Um, and I did that, I started that in September of last year. Um, Can you give me an example of an issue in Indian country that you hope Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, talk about, and have you heard them talk about them? Yeah, I've actually met Kamala, and I've heard um, Biden speak um, in 2008 here in Denver at the convention. Um, you know, what What I would hope to see is an increase in infrastructure and opportunity. Um, you know, on reservations, there's a, there's so much poverty and lack of hope um, and it's hard for Native Americans to really be resilient and, you know, have the same opportunities we see here in urban areas. Um, and, and there's there's somewhere so much intersectionality between, you know, the the disparities we see in Indian country. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me, Richard, is how generational the poverty is and how intractable I think that it can feel. Where do you draw hope when you look at the long history of that disadvantage? Yeah, you know, my great-grandmother, grandmother, um, Suda to Suda Kosachata, um, my Comanche grandmother, when she was a child, she was whipped um, in boarding schools in Oklahoma to the point she wouldn't even speak her language to when she died um, in her early 90s. Um, and, and we take these lessons of these injustices put upon us by the U.S. government and, you know, colonial um, infrastructure and we take that back. You know, we, we're resilient people. We are fighters. We're warriors. Um, and and it's, really, it's really important that Native Americans really get involved, engaged within the political process. We're the most political creatures in this country. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, it, it's an uphill battle. I don't think anything I do in my life, I will see the the impact it has in Indian country. Um, and, and that's, that's okay because, you know, in, in native teachings, we do things for seven generations ahead. You know, we fight for our children, our grandchildren, our great, great grandchildren. And, and, you know, it's, it's always an uphill battle and there's so much work to do. But you aren't in this just for your own generation. You're thinking uh, far down the line, it sounds like. I want to note that you went into this Supporting Bernie Sanders, correct? Yeah. Um, I was about 50-50 between Bernie and Warren. Um, Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. And and I, I see that they are both engaged um, 
and they care. You know, they listen to Indian country. Um, and and I have to give Bernie, um, you know, an applaud because he actually went to the Comanche Nation Fair last year, um, and he is the first president or presidential candidate since Theodore Roosevelt that had went down there and actually visited with the tribes down there. Um, and Warren, you know, people have a lot of, you know, hostility because of this idea that she, you know, had the ancestry test and said she was Cherokee, but that I'm from Oklahoma and that is a firmly held belief by almost every Oklahoman, mm. you know, and what matters is she apologized. You know, she, she is doing work with Representative Deb Howland, you know, especially with the missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so, so does Biden have your full support? Is there more that you'd like to see from him? Um, you know, I, this is a crucial time, not only within Indian country, but in the U.S. and globally. You know, our democracy is being attacked by Donald Trump, and it's, it's not okay, you know. And I will stand behind Biden and Kamala um, because, you know, we're seeing an, a, a complete erosion of our democracy, you know, with the USPS being dismantled. You know, we have um, unmarked police, federal police in cities kidnapping people. You know, <laughs> there, there's so many things that Donald Trump is doing wrong in this country. And we have to fight, you know, like Michelle Obama had said, we have to fight like our lives depend on it because they do. What does the fight look like to you? Does it look like knocking on doors? I, I heard a story recently about how one conservative group is trying to do that and still maintain a distance from people. Does it look like making phone calls? Um, you know, within Indian country, you really have to engage the voters. Um, there is a lack of trust between the government and, and Native people, and it's understandable. But, you know, we, I, I really want to believe, I have to believe, you know, that our impact within the political process of this country is important, you know, not only for our people, but for the resiliency of our people. So do you imagine traveling? Do you imagine getting people registered to vote remotely? I'm curious what that looks like day to day. Yeah. Yesterday on our Colorado delegation um, call, I was actually talking about are talking to Secretary Jenna Griswold um, about going down to the Ute reservations, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain, to register them to vote, you know, because that not only voter access within the mail-in ballots or um, voting sites, you know, a lot of Indians aren't even registered to vote. And they, just like in Indian country, there's a lot to do, um, a lot to do and work within the whole democratic process. It, it, it's an uphill battle. Richard, I'm really grateful for your time. Nice to meet you. Yeah, and thank you for having me, and thank you for hearing the voices of Native people. Absolutely. Richard Henson, student at the University of Colorado, Denver, heads two Native American nonprofits. He's a delegate to this year's Democratic National Convention. Of course, the GOP holds its big event next week. We'll hear from a Republican delegate then. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. With The Weight of Gold, it's a new documentary about Olympians' mental health. 
I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. I'm Jenny Brendine, education reporter at CPR News. Parents and students have so many questions about returning to school this season. School districts struggle with how to bring kids back to the classroom safely. Big city school districts and rural schools have different challenges, and the experience from family to family can be stark. CPR News is working on the stories that can connect you with how this school season impacts your family. Stay informed, trust the facts, trust CPR News. We didn't get the thrill and the pageantry of the Summer Olympics this year because of the pandemic, but athletes continue to train, and there is a new monument to their achievements in Colorado Springs with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum that just opened. There's also a new film out about athletes' mental health and how little attention it gets compared to their physical conditioning. This HBO documentary is called The Weight of Gold, Swimmer Michael Phelps narrates. You might be listening to all of us talk about our struggles and wonder, why don't you just get help? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And probably the biggest is connected to what got us to the top in the first place. Our conviction that we can make ourselves unbeatable if we just work at it. Our belief that there's no way we should ever need help. Our fear that we'll become weak if we show any vulnerability. The stigma of having mental health problems is a huge issue all across society. How tough the issues are to talk about or even just acknowledge. And Olympians are definitely a group who want to keep their pain out of sight. Also appearing in this film, our next guests, Colorado natives, freestyle skier Jeremy Bloom and skeleton champion Katie Ulander, who has her sights set on the 2022 Winter Games. Katie, Jeremy, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having us here. Yeah, great to be here. Jeremy, you're actually an executive producer on the film, and you say in it, that the death by suicide of your friend, the aerial skier Jarrett Speedy Peterson, got you involved in mental health advocacy. Would you start by telling us about about Speedy? Yeah, I grew up skiing with Speedy. He was on the aerials team, and, and I was on the moguls team, and we made the United States ski team around the same age and traveled to some World Cups together. And, you know, he was just always a really happy-go-lucky guy, always smiling, kind of as described as the life of the party. And I always really valued our, our friendship. And, and one night in Lake Placid before World Cup, he was just distraught. And he asked if he could talk to me. And, and that was the first time and only time that he gave me a glimpse into the demons and struggles that uh, were playing out inside of his brain. And I didn't know it at the time. You know, I was naive on the topic of mental health. You know, I was focused on a World Cup the next day, and I tried to listen and be there the best I could. But I kind of concluded that, you know, he was just having a bad night. I, I didn't think that it was an actual disease. And, you know, many years later, he, he ended up taking his life. And, and when I, you know, I was obviously devastated, but also upon reflection, feeling like I could have done more and I should have done more. So at that moment, I, I made the decision that whatever I can do in my life to better educate myself, and participate in the destigmatization of mental health and anxiety and thoughts of suicide that I would try to do my part in his honor and in his memory. 
I think that the term you used is that he gave you a glimpse into his demons. What did his demons look and sound like as an Olympian? Well, Speedy didn't have an easy go of life. He was sexually abused as a young child. Uh, He was at a party uh, sitting next to his friend who pulled out a gun and killed himself right next to him. And, you know, he got into some conflict at the Olympics and fights and got arrested. And he he didn't have the easiest go. And And I think, you know, all those things led to wrestling with different challenges. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, it's been described as chemical imbalances in the brain. And I would be surprised if he didn't have that. And, you know, oftentimes depression or thoughts of suicide, you know, especially with people from the outside looking in who, you know, have everything at their fingertips or won Olympic medals or have money or have a lot of trophies. Oftentimes you don't, you can't understand why that might be. But then once you really educate yourself on the topic, you realize that none of that matters. Like hmm. none of that matters. I mean, that depression and anxiety at elevated levels is a cancer. It is a diabetes. It is a disease just like those but it plays out in different ways, is diagnosed in different ways. And I think it's time that our society wakes up to the fact that these are diseases and we should help and treat people uh, like they just told us that they have cancer or diabetes and not treat them like they're weak people. I hadn't heard it put quite that way. You know, if someone was diagnosed with cancer, the last thing you'd say is, yeah, but you're happy at work. (laughs) You know, like that would be an absurd response. Katie, your best friend died, the Olympic champion bobsledder Steve Holcomb, um, and you actually found his body. Uh, Do you want to say a few words about what happened and how it affected your own mental health? Oh, man, that was uh, very tough because Holcomb had told me about his depression. We had some deep discussions about it and what would happen, how he would isolate himself and I think part of that was the anxiety and, and fears and just did the overall like snowball effect of the negative thought train. And I think he had a tendency to medic, self-medicate through alcohol. Hmm. So I think it's really important to recognize how one copes and take note that self-care is important. It really affected me. I was having panic attacks. I was struggling to focus. I had a lot of guilt and shame because I felt like I should have been there for him. And I felt like I could have done more, which I think Jeremy could relate to and uh, with Speedy, as he said, you know, that he didn't quite understand. And I think that's a huge underlying theme in the film is helping people understand mental health is, to me, I don't think it's a disease. I think it's something we all deal with. It's just that some of us get caught up and spiral a little bit easier than others. The way I look at it, it's just as important as your physical health. Even if you're not diagnosed with something there are always ways for you to better manage stress, um, better manage your thoughts, and just be more equipped to handle the stresses that come in daily life. It just so happens that careers or athletes or people, humans, that face high-stress situations are going to be more susceptible to having these issues of depression, anxiety. I, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I've had my moments. Jeremy, do you want to respond to that? Katie summed it up well. You know, um, Holcomb was a good buddy of mine. I didn't know him as quite as well as Katie, but, you know, later in his life, he really did open up about how depression 
had impacted him. And really the, the catalyst of this film, of The Weight of Gold, was because Brett Bradkin, the, the visionary behind the film, was doing a story on him days before he passed away. And he's interviewed talking about depression, and you can just see the weight inside his eyes and just the gravity of the impact. And, you know, look, we all deal with life, right? We all deal with adversity. We all deal with failure, no matter who we are. Uh, Walt Disney was fired for a lack of imagination before he started Disney. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. Michael Jordan was cut twice in, in high school. I mean, so, you know, we have to equip young people with enough grit and tenacity to deal with the inevitable struggles of life. That's really important. But sometimes, and especially in athletics, we go too far where we completely close off the door for any vulnerability because a vulnerability is described as weakness by a coach potentially Hmm. uh, or by an NGB organization. And that's where we're failing our athletes. It occurs to me that if, if Olympians can talk openly about this, that maybe that creates some space for the rest of us to have this conversation. Go ahead, Katie. Oh, I was going to say, to just add on to what Jeremy's saying, I think one of the main points in the film is that, obviously, with the lineup, we're all successful. And we all had our own battles at different points in our careers. The way you feel and how your thoughts resonate with you don't take away your capabilities of performance. They don't take away, you know, the potential in your life. So it's a matter of getting rid of that false construct that if you're having negative thoughts or feelings that you're weak, that you're not enough. There's this example I'd like to talk about. When your dad was dying, will you explain the tension around wanting to see him? Oh, man. Um, It was a slow build. Uh, I found out that summer that um, he wasn't doing well and took care of him and then going into the fall... I had talked to him about staying and he urged me to go because he knew the pressures of like needing to qualify for not just myself, but the team. And he was also an athlete. So he didn't want to get in the way, which I think most parents would, you know, feel. Hmm. So I go and then I get some emails informing me that he wasn't going to make it and went to the coach and was like, I don't know if I should go or if I should stay. And he just explained that if I left, that they would be likely cut in funding. So he would, he said that I should stay and that, that I couldn't go. And I was like, okay, you know, kind of understanding the situation of how the Olympic committee gave funding was if you had medals, they would give you funding going into an Olympic year. If you didn't, they would cut it. Um, and the following season was the Olympic season. However, I got another email and I went back and At that point, it wasn't even open to discussion. It it kind of tore me up. And I think it's a reflection. Like, I have compassion for the situation that the staff and the MGBs are put in. Because who wants to be put in that situation, right? But it's just as bad for me, if not worse, because I I didn't get to go home. And it kind of ruined sport for me a little bit. And I, I didn't even have time to process that. So that's what I mean by getting put in a position where you're having to shove emotions or feelings or parts of yourself away in order to focus, to try to compete. And the coaches, I think, knew that I needed help, but they didn't know what to do. And I think that's part of what's really important is creating an environment that doesn't keep the stigma of mental health as a weakness, then also creating a space 
for athletes to go that's safe and independent of those incentives. You know, I want to play this clip from the film. This is skater Gracie Gold. Being an Olympian is advertised as this amazing thing, and they leave out all of the side effects. So let's say that you make it to the Olympics. Some side effects may include an eating disorder, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, almost like a disconnect from the real world. And then when all those side effects do happen, there's nothing in play to like help you with those. They kind of advertise this like keeping our athletes healthy and happy. And like they really only deliver physically. Everything else is just kind of like, oh, not our problem. Jeremy, did you feel that way? I think Gracie was very powerful in this film, and and I think she brought some really interesting perspectives. That was one of them. Another comment that stood out is, I think she said, if I twisted my ankle, I'd have a lineup of the best doctors on the planet ready to fix my ankle. But if, you know, if I was dealing with some sort of depression, there was nobody uh, there for me. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it is fair to say that neither the national governing bodies like USA Skiing, in my case, or USA Figure Skating or USA Swimming, did not provide the resources. But recently, and and I think in part through the work of The Weight of Gold and having these conversations, Sarah Hirschland, who's the CEO at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, has uh, announced the task force that's going to come out and, and really work on these issues and provide an independent body to be a resource for athletes. And, you know, I I compliment them on that step. Is it going to fix everything? No. Is it going to solve everything? No. But they're basically accepting the fact that they haven't done enough and this is important to them. Katie, do you think those steps by the committee are ample? What else would you like to see, if anything? I think any effort to help the athlete is appreciated. But I think and I've, I've spoken to a couple of people in the Olympic Committee about this, that until the environment and the culture changes, mm-hmm. that putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms isn't really going to be enough. You know, your access to resources is tied to your performance, and your performance is seen still as separate from your mental health, and they should be the same. I think we're coming to a point similar to what happened in 1999 when they decided to create the anti-doping agency. The sporting organizations realized that they couldn't regulate and promote sport. Um, I think we need an organization that can mediate, negotiate on behalf of the athlete and is a place where they can go to without being scared of being thought of as weak or a problem or any number of things and and make sure that we're protected in a way. Because that was more so what I dealt with on my side. And then, you know, after finding Holcomb's body, I didn't get any help. And I asked for it. I think I have like 70 pages of documented requests. And I know for a fact that Holcomb asked for help. And I, I don't think anyone's denying that those resources weren't there at that time. But I'm skeptical in seeing that now they're attempting to create resources without changing the culture or the environment. It's kind of like adding more stuff without creating a safe space. I think that you are a proponent of the Empower Athletes Act. This is in, I believe, the U.S. Senate, which would give athletes certain labor rights, providing them services at each level of competition, I mean, including retirement. Because what I hear you saying, Katie, is that 
it's a an inherent conflict for the organization pushing you to win to also be looking out for your mental health. It's hard to just pinpoint it on mental health. I just think the water starts to get a little muddy because you have an athlete that wants to compete as well. Like that was the situation I was in. I wanted to compete. I wanted to help my team, but could there have been a better way forward? And there were, there was no pathway for that. The organization's primary objective is to earn money, promote sport, and they do it phenomenally well. Like I think the USOC, USOPC does a great job at that. Um, but I think it's time we step a bit further and ensure that there's someone else there looking out for the well-being and fairness um, in all aspects. Like we see it with the scandal with the gymnast where mm. keeping the image of sport ended up being a little bit higher of a priority than the safety of the athlete. And yeah, I think going through the different stages of, of your career, it would be nice to have a set pathway and understanding of what benefits or privileges are there and kind of help through transition of, of when to walk away when you're done with the sport, you know, what's next and discovering how to apply the skills you have to the real world or whatever real is. To the next <laughs> phase. Oh, and as far as the bill, the Senate passed it. Uh, so now it's gone to the house. So it still could use support for anyone that thinks it's a good idea. And I, I hope the USOP supports it as well. USOPC supports it as well. Um, Cause I really think that making some changes will benefit everyone. I think that we will see an increase in performance in medals, and happiness and safety. Well, Katie, I'm so glad you talked about what happens after an Olympic career. Uh, This is something Lolo Jones, the sprinter and bobsledder, reflects on in the film The Weight of Gold. I will never regret competing for Team USA in this country. Absolutely not. I've helped promote the Olympic sports for three Olympics. I've given my blood, sweat, and tears. I've given my talent... And all I'm asking is that after it's all said and done, someone can help me mentally get through this. You know, just add that in the film, Michael Phelps asks, who am I? You know, he said that swimming so defined him that he didn't know who he was out of the pool. So Jeremy, off the slopes, off the football field, you had an NFL career. Do you know who you are? I mean, I think that's the biggest fear for most athletes. Uh, Not winning an Olympic gold medal is certainly a fear. Not making an Olympic team is a fear. But I think all of us face the fear of kind of reinvention. You know, I was the football skier. Michael was the swimmer. Katie was the girl who's super crazy and goes headfirst like 100-mile down ice and skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a whole other topic. But, yeah, I mean, it's like we all have to face reinvention, and it's a really tricky and difficult thing to do. There's no roadmap for it. There's no game plan for it. It's unique and individual to everybody. And that was my biggest fear. And I started planting seeds in other areas, business and TV and just anything that wasn't sports. I mean, ever, ever since I was like 18 or 19. And I was really fortunate and, and you know, lucky to be able to transition into an area that I love now. I, I started a tech company. Now we have hundreds of employees and I love it. And I love business and I love scaling companies, and I also started a nonprofit. And so those are kind of my new football and skiing. And so, Katie, I... I mean, the, other, yeah, go ahead. the other aspect of that, though, is, and this is where I think Holcomb was struggling, because he's extremely successful, and he had a degree with computers, and, and he had options. But I think, like, you know, as Jeremy pointed out, a lot of athletes tie their identity to the sport, and a lot of that, in my mind, comes with the territory and the environment we're in, 
where you're only relevant when you're performing. You're only part of the conversation if you're performing. If you're not, who are you? Like, why are you here? And, you know, they'll pull your health insurance in a, in a heartbeat if you're not performing. So it's a lot of pressure to continue to stay relevant. And that, to me, is dangerous because now you're tying your identity and your self-worth to your performances. And that's kind of what happened, you know, to me when my father passed away. Mm-hmm. It became about the story. It became about I have to win for this, like, NBC story that became all about my dad. And I never really had a chance to process or, or come to terms or with my own values or what had happened. So I think it's just important moving forward that the environment recognizes the athletes as human beings and that it moves away from win at all costs and incentivization in, in regard to like your worth. Not that, don't get me wrong, not that people that are winning shouldn't have certain privileges above others, but that there should be a clear understanding of your value, that it's not solely tied into that. I just want to say that you're training for your fifth Olympics. So the question is a bit premature, but do you know what the next chapter or the post-Olympic chapter would bring? And do you know who you are off the sled? Uh, Yeah, for me, I think it's a bit different in circumstance because I didn't get into the Olympics wanting to win a medal. I, I was drawn to it because of the discovery of self. Like, you know, the instant that, that changed and it became about, you know, my father passed away. I needed to keep my health insurance. I needed to make sure that I could, I don't know, perform for the generalized other, like what people were expecting. I kind of lost that. So the whole reason I'm finishing out my career, whether I make the Olympics or not, I think, you know, statistically speaking, I have a good shot, but I wanted to finish on my own terms, Um, more in the pursuit of that excellence again and reminding myself of what makes life awesome so I'm also studying for the SAT. I want to try to apply to Harvard. Big goal. I might not get in, but I figured there's no harm in trying. And then oh. I plan to apply to Berkeley and UT. And I just took the ASVAB yesterday and maybe getting into the Air Force in a career called Combat Camera. We'll see. I, I don't know if it makes sense to really plan things out in, in my case. It's always been more about seizing opportunities and just being truthful. Katie Ulander is a four-time Olympian in skeleton who's hoping to make it to her fifth Games, Beijing 2022. And Jeremy Bloom is a two-time Olympian in aerial skiing. They're both part of the new HBO documentary, The Weight of Gold. If you or someone you know needs mental health support, you can connect with Colorado's crisis services by texting TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. Finally today, we want to introduce you to the newest member of the Colorado Matters team, a producer and reporter who's based in Colorado Springs. And in fact, we'll let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Allie Budner. I'm really excited to join the show. One of the things I love most about public radio journalism is the people I get to meet. I think of Haven Coleman. She was just 12 when she helped organize last year's Youth Climate March. I met her on the steps of the state capitol on a day she was striking from school. She's so full of conviction, but also has a sense of humor about something as dire as climate change. Here she was talking to a curious passerby. School for climate, what are you doing it for? 
the um, the crisis that we're dealing with right now. She's given this response countless times, patiently breaking down the science of climate change to passing adults and explaining why it matters to her enough to leave school. And I guess I'm fighting to like stop the worst effects. Thank you. Continue to do what you do, and I will look at that climate change. High five, sister. That was fun. That was the first interaction of the day, and it was a positive one. It wasn't like somebody flipping me off like two weeks ago. I also love traveling to different corners of the state for stories, something that's less possible with the pandemic, but I remember reporting on an indigenous archaeological site near Durango. It was being dug up just in time for a new section of highway. I met Sam Mays there from the Southern Ute tribe, who shared his feelings about the project. You know, those are my family's bones in there. Those are what we put in the ground already. We don't have a ceremony to dig them up and put them somewhere else. And sometimes I get to profile people in my own backyard, like violin maker Juan Mijares. He's practiced his craft here in Colorado Springs for decades. He plays me a bit of a Bach sonata on a violin he built himself. I may not be famous or well-known, but just the idea that someone somewhere will be appreciating something that I did, maybe 100 or 200 years from now, that's kind of a nice thing. So I look forward to bringing you more voices like these on Colorado Matters. And we look forward to hearing those voices. Ali Budner, welcome to the team. That's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.